Good morning, friends. Good morning. Very good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, gosh, freshly back in town and liking it. And uh, good, good to be with all of you today, too. Um, so today we are observing a day in the church calendar known as All Saints Day. Or uh, around here we affectionately refer to it as Old Dead Guys Day. Uh, and Old Dead Gals as well. Sometimes we'll do a message on one or the other. But um, we're, we're stepping aside from the teaching series we've been doing on American Idols. And uh, we'll come back to that next week. But today, All Saints Day. So if, uh, if you're not familiar with our church and kind of what our normal order of services. Usually we, we take time and we work through a text in the Bible and see how we can apply that to our lives. When it comes to All Saints Day, we do something kind of different. We, we go in reverse. We start with a person. We start with a, a man or woman who's kind of a great figure in the history of the church, and we look at their lives and then kind of work backwards from that to the scriptures. What can we learn from them about how we might better live our life in Christ? How do they illustrate the scriptures. And this is something that the Bible actually teaches us to do. It talks about this great cloud of witnesses that we are to learn from as we live out our faith. A uh, couple, of, couple of examples of this, just to see how the scriptures direct us in this. So this is Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, Paul writes here, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Right? He's saying, look at my example and those who do what I do, and, and learn from that, learn how to live. Or this is from Hebrews 13, verse 8. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Right? Consider how they have done it, and then imitate. See, how can I live that way as well? And, and this is something we need. Uh, sometimes it, it can be difficult uh, when we're looking at the example of Jesus alone. Sometimes it can feel like, man, how do I get there? Right? That's the goal, of course. But as we look at other believers around us and historically who are doing it well, that can be a bridge to helping us get closer to that. So in other words, the scriptures are saying, in learning how to follow Jesus, we need models. Look at the lives of others who are doing it well, who are putting the scriptures into practice and learn. So this is, I want to say this is like the 14th or 15th time we've done this as a church. Some previous luminaries, you can dig back through our archives if any of these make you curious. But uh, we've done C.S. Lewis on the life of the mind, uh, William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist and activist, uh, Brother Lawrence, a great example of the contemplative life. Martin Luther, the great reformer. Uh, others, too. Also some that are maybe less likely candidates, but have been super fun. Bono, the lead singer of U2, uh, the activist artist. Uh, Arthur Guinness, great humanitarian and maker of a really good beer. And Mr. Rogers, the all-around gentle prophet. So those, look through the archives. There are some fun ones. Uh, I, have, I have a friend who... Um, uh, gosh, they were part of our church years ago, but every St. Patrick's Day, they listen to the Arthur Guinness message and then <laughs> lift a glass in his honor. So uh, today we are, we're going to look at the life of a man that many of you have probably not heard of, 
But if you are a Christian, undoubtedly this person has had an effect on your faith. Without question, he has. Uh, he is easily among the top five most influential Christians of the 20th century. Uh, and in fact, in 2005, six years before his death, Time Magazine named him one of the world's 100 most influential people. Not the 100 most influential Christians, but just the, one of the 100 most influential humans walking on the planet. Uh, he has been a huge figure for me personally and just my efforts to, to find those that I want to emulate. Uh, his name is John Stott. He was a British pastor and theologian and author, and he represents for us sort of the quintessential pastor theologian. Uh, so let's pray. We'll take a look at his life and the scriptures around that. So, uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks for how you love us. We thank you for sending your son to die for us, for inviting us into new and everlasting life. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who is always with us, empowering us, comforting us, guiding us. We receive that this morning. And Lord, today as we look at the life of a great Christian who's gone before us, we pray that you might be working in our hearts, that you might quicken us to learn what it is that you are saying to us through his example, uh, through the scriptures, as your spirit leads us. Uh, we ask for this. We trust you for it. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So in 2004, uh, David Brooks, a columnist at the New York Times, he wrote a column titled, Who is John Stott? And he wrote this shortly after the re-election of George W. Bush. And it came about because there was this puzzling insight from pollsters that had really only been hit on this, this first time. It was something that had been around for a while, but just hadn't really made the news. But pollsters had determined that these strange religious creatures known as evangelicals had voted over 80% for George W. Bush. And all of a sudden there is this question, who are these people? Who are they and how are there so many of them and why were they voting for him? And so there's kind of this flurry of activity among the liberal elites in academia and in papers like the New York Times and Washington Post, just wondering, you know, what is an evangelical? Is it kind of like a Baptist? What are we talking about here? And um, <clears throat> it was perplexing uh, because those two industries, uh, uh, your academia and especially your, your, uh, your top universities and then your, your leading newspapers are overwhelmingly secular and overwhelmingly liberal in their outlook. You might know that. Um, but they, they were genuinely perplexed. It was this question of who are these people? What are they about? How do we understand them? David Brooks, who himself is a non-practicing secular Jew, was perplexed too. And he was kind of wrestling with this question. So some weeks later, he's at a cocktail party in New York City, and some friends are talking about this. What's an evangelical? Who are all these people? Why do they vote as they do, etc.? And And in that, they're kind of debating this and that, and this one friend in that circle who he respected says, no, 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 the rest of you totally have this wrong. If evangelicals were going to elect a pope, it wouldn't be Jerry Falwell, it wouldn't be James Dobson, it wouldn't be Pat Robertson or any of those guys that you see on the television talk shows. If they were going to elect a pope, it would be John Stott. 
And David Brooks was like, who in the world is John Stott? And everyone at the party was like, who are you talking about? Who in the world is John Stott? So Brooks, like a good journalist, decides he's going to research it. And he starts reading some of Stott's books, and he goes online, he's listening to some of his sermons, and the result of that is he writes this, what became a very famous article in the New York Times, where he names John Stott the evangelical pope. Now, he didn't know that that article and all that went into it was going to end up changing his life as well, becoming really a turning point. Uh, a couple of years ago, 2019, David Brooks wrote a memoir called The Second Mountain. It's a terrific book. But in it, Brooks looks back on this article and on his experience. And, and by the way, this part of his book takes up nearly a third of the book. You've got all these chapters that are like 15 pages long, and then you've got this one uh, about what happened to him in this. He looks back on this article and his experience, and this is what he writes. He says, to anybody who lives in the secular culture, one's first encounter with a joyful, intelligent Christian comes as something of a shock. We are used to looking down on the Franklin Graham, Pat Robertson types, but it's unnerving to encounter a Christian you would, on balance, very much like to be. And then this is how he describes Stott. Stott's voice, I wrote, this is from the, the 2004 article, is friendly, courteous, and natural. It is humble and self-critical, but also confident, joyful, and optimistic. Stott's mission is to pierce through all the incrustations and share direct contact with Jesus. Stott says that the central message of the gospel is not the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus himself, the human divine figure. He is always bringing people back to the concrete reality of Jesus' life and sacrifice. Now, not long after Stott publishes this article in 2004, he gets an email from John Stott. Stott was going to be visiting Washington, D.C. and says, hey, do you by chance have time to come down from New York and join me for lunch? And, uh, and Brooks says, sure. You know, he's thinking maybe I'll do a follow-up article or whatever. So he goes, meets John Stott for lunch at, uh, at this restaurant in Washington, D.C. And he says they, they chat for a while, and then, and then Stott kind of turns the conversation, and he's got all of these questions for David Brooks. He says, where are you in your faith? What do you think of the claims of Jesus? What do you think about Judaism? What is it that you believe? And he told Brooks, when I read your article, I sensed in it there's some kind of movement towards God that's happening in you. Do you think that's true? And Brooks says it's that moment that he first began to suspect that the hound of heaven was pursuing him. And within about a year's time, David Brooks had become a Christian himself. Uh, now, that's kind of an introductory picture for you of who John Stott is. Uh, I want to give you some more kind of biographical info, and then we'll, we'll do some lessons from his life. But we've got a video that will uh, we'll introduce you to kind of some of the big points of who Stott is. <laughs> John Stott is known around the world as a preacher of the gospel, student of the Bible, missionary to the world, best-selling author, and servant of the global church. Yet, there's only one title he valued, Disciple of Jesus Christ. What is your vision of Jesus Christ? Let's have the courage to reject all unbiblical and unbalanced notions 
of the authentic Jesus. John Stott was born April 27, 1921. He grew up in London, where his family frequently attended All Souls Church at Langham Place. It was during his teenage years at boarding school that he was confronted with the claims of Christ and made a lifelong commitment to be his disciple. He attended the University of Cambridge where he felt a deep sense of call to the Christian ministry. After graduation, he accepted a position at All Souls Church and was ordained into the Anglican Communion. John Stott's ministry began at All Souls, but it would gradually grow in influence on the wider world. His concern for the doctrinal purity of the Anglican Church led to the founding of the Evangelical Fellowship of the Anglican Communion. A friendship with Billy Graham led to the formation of the Lausanne movement from a shared passion to see Christ's gospel advance around the world. The London Institute for Contemporary Christianity was established under his leadership to help Christians apply the Bible to contemporary issues. His writing resulted in over 50 books covering important topics on the Christian life and the gospel. Ultimately, Stott would pour his energy and book royalties into the Langham Partnership in order to raise the standard of biblical preaching around the world. Today, Langham Partnership is a global ministry that works in more than 135 nations across the majority world, places like Latin America, Asia, Africa and the Middle East where now 67% of the world's Christians live, yet where 80% of preachers lack formal biblical training. In these regions, Langham has developed three unique programs to equip Christ-like leaders. Langham identifies and supports emerging theological leaders through their PhD studies in Bible and theology. These scholars go on to multiply more leaders and shape nations for Christ. Langham supports local Christian leaders in creating relevant Bible study materials and they distribute books to churches, colleges and seminaries so pastors and lay leaders can deepen their understanding of scripture. And Langham nurtures grassroots preaching movements by gathering pastors for training seminars where they learn to faithfully preach God's word. Pastors return to their local communities where they form preaching clubs to share what they've learned with others. Thanks to the vision of John Stott, today Langham has helped equip nearly 400 theological leaders, distributed more than 1 million books and trained tens of thousands of grassroots pastors around the world. Mission is integral to authentic Christianity and Christianity without mission is Christianity no longer. For you and I affirm the uniqueness and finality of Jesus Christ. Stott entered the presence of the Lord on July 27, 2011, but the influence of his ministry continues to be felt around the world through the Langham Partnership. The Langham Partnership is supported by Christians who share Stott's vision to raise the standard of biblical preaching around the world.
very unassuming little man, isn't he? Um, you can just see his sweet spirit. Uh, Stodd in his, his ministry life had numerous offers uh, to become the head of various seminaries, to become an archbishop in the Church of England, etc. But he really believed his true calling was to equip global leaders. And beginning in the 1950s, uh, his, his concern really grew <clears throat> that most of the resources to train pastors were in the already developed Western world. But increasingly, much of the Christian population and many leaders uh, were in the still developing world. And so he signed over all of his royalties for his books, which ended up selling in the millions uh, to fund this mission, the Langham Partnership, as you saw. Uh, for him, this was living out Jesus' words that from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And he was passionate about this. Uh, we might say we've, we've framed it this way uh, here in, in terms of other topics, but Stott leveraged his privilege for the sake of those who do not have similar advantages. And as a result, had massive impact on the Western world, but even greater impact on the developing world. So among his most important accomplishments, if you were to ask him, uh, they had, had tens of thousands of pastors that they trained in the majority world uh, in a biblical worldview and how to teach and preach the Bible, etc. And, and from among those, from kind of their best and brightest, they had over 400 uh, scholars uh, went on to the PhD level that they were able to support and fund as, uh, uh, so that they could become equippers in their own countries. Uh, our work in Mozambique is really an indirect recipient of this. We don't have formal ties to the Langham Partnership, but we are really walking in the steps of John Stott in what we do. Uh, you all know one of the things that we do there is we have a pastor training school, and, and we, we run it very much along these lines. The job there is to equip our pastors, most of whom in Mozambique would have an elementary level uh, uh, education uh, but we equip these pastors and especially our regional leaders who are able to go back into their regions and equip the other pastors there. And likewise, uh, there's been a couple so far just exceptionally gifted, very bright individuals that we've been able to send on to advanced studies and they're now in seminary and they will be the future of, of equipping leaders in Mozambique long after we are gone. So uh, all that really is, is kind of an extension of the path that John Stott has laid out for the Western Church. So how did he do this? What was it about John Stott? What were the convictions? What were the values? What were the practices that helped him change the world for Christ in the ways that he did? Uh, well, John Stott uh, loved his acronyms. And uh, so I guess he was, he was a preacher to the core, I suppose. Um, I'm gonna give you three acronyms that he used that sort of sum up his life and his ministry. So, first one is this. It's BBC, which for him stands for Balanced Biblical Christianity. And as an Englishman, he loved pointing out that BBC did not just stand for British Broadcasting Corporation, but in his terms, it was for Balanced Biblical Christianity. He was passionate about this. Now, to understand John Stott, there were two contemporary movements going on around the time of his birth that kind of shaped his life and ministry. And I want to want to give you some context here so it makes sense. But uh, two forces that really shaped what he was trying to do. The first one 
is uh, beginning in the late 19th century and then really picking up steam in the early 20th century. Uh, there was a movement called modernism, uh, also known as theological liberalism. So this is different than political liberalism. So don't, don't conflate the two here, but theological liberalism. Uh, at its core, it rejected the scripture's truthfulness and authority and felt free to discount or ignore or explain away those parts of the Bible that they didn't feel fit what they felt was modern. Didn't fit sort of their progressive sensibilities and so they just sort of scooted those aside. And over the course of a couple of decades, that movement took root especially in the Church of England uh, where John Stott was coming up. And over the course of decades, really came to a point where it pushed out historic biblical Christianity so that that was kind of marginal and the dominant force in the Church of England and England and in some other places too in America, it took root in the Episcopal Church, was the, which was the arm of that denomination here, um, and pushed historic biblical Christianity to the margins. So if, if that movement, if that sounds at all familiar, uh, it's because there has really been a resurgence of that in recent years, and it's something we talk about here um, with a lot of regularity. Um, it lures disillusioned Christians in particular into a watered-down version of the faith that just picks and chooses what parts of historical biblical Christianity you want and sets aside the others. Uh, that, along with a similar movement we have in America today on the right, uh, I would say and have said to you repeatedly, I think those are the most serious threat to Christian faith today. Uh, for John Stott, he was, was becoming a young man right at the apex of this movement at that time. Um, for John Stott, this was a movement that had to be resisted against all else. And he would say to you, of, of course, among Christians coming to the scripture, of course there are going to be differences in interpretation between those who believe the Bible to be God's word. But this is not that. This is a setting aside of those parts that we don't like or we don't think fit with modern times. Uh, and of course, there's always gonna be a need to faithfully apply the Bible in whatever context you find yourself. But he would say again, this is not that. This is a rejection of the Bible as our source of authority for life and practice. Uh, an attempt to allow Christianity to evolve with the times as opposed to passing on the faith that was handed to us. So Stott would say, if you lose the scriptures as your foundation, then you lose Christian faith. You might retain the name, you might retain some likeness, but it's not the same. It is not a faithful rendition of Christianity. And this, by the way, is not just a modern problem. Uh, this was occurring in different ways even in the first century. And as you look at uh, especially some of the last books that were written in the New Testament, you see there's, there's a, a lot of discussion about this as well, particularly in what we call the pastoral epistles, Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus, two young protégés of his that were pastoring in various parts of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, I want to give you just a, a taste of this, of how it's treated in the scriptures uh, these are a few verses that are from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes this. He says, follow what you heard from me as the pattern of true teaching. Follow it with faith and love because you belong to Christ Jesus. Guard the truth 
of the good news that you were trusted with. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So you, you see what he's saying there. And this becomes a theme for this book he's writing to Timothy. Guard what has been given to you. There will be those who want to change it. Don't do it. Move to chapter 2. He says, You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Right? So he says, pass on the message of Christ as you have received it. Don't lose it. Don't change it. Uh, down to chapter 4. He writes, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound doctrine. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. So he's saying to Timothy, hey, people are not always going to like the faith as it's been given to you. He says, that doesn't matter. You're not at liberty to change it. You have to be faithful to it. Uh, this was a passion for Stott. As he was seeing this, this latter passage lived out in front of him in his day in the Church of England and elsewhere. And his answer was BBC, Balanced Biblical Christianity. And similar to C.S. Lewis and similar actually to our denomination, this is a big part of our origin story as a people as well, uh, was Christianity needs to be balanced and it needs to be biblical. It has to be balanced. It can't be hung up on just this theological question or this particular emphasis. Uh, it needs to encompass the whole of what the scriptures teach. We're not at liberty to pick and choose those parts that we want. And it has to be biblical, right? Stott would say it can't go the way of liberal theology, where you keep the name, but you remake Christian faith into something that earlier centuries of Christians would not be able to recognize as authentic. It has to keep biblical revelation at the center. Stott wrote this. He said, indeed, in the end, there are only two possible responses to the word of God. One is to humble ourselves and tremble at it. The other is to harden our hearts, stiffen our necks, and reject it. And he would focus people on that choice. What will you do with Jesus, not as you imagine him to be, but Jesus as he is presented to us in the scriptures. So against the liberalizing tendency that was taking over the Church of England at that time, Stott made it his aim to develop leaders both there and in America and then in the developing world who practiced balanced biblical Christianity. Uh, this required certain traits, humility, honesty, a willingness to ask uncomfortable questions and to bring the Bible to bear on the issues that people were wrestling with in his day. And that brings us to number two. Acronym two is SSS, which for Stott stood for Stop, Study, and Struggle. Stop, Study, and Struggle. Uh, John Stott was passionate about the importance of good scholarship. 
of developing the Christian mind. It would say, in order to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we've got to have minds that we're exercising. We have to engage in ways that, uh, uh, that bring reason to bear on our interpretation of Scripture and our application of it as well. So this kind of reflects the second movement that was going on around Stott's time as well that shaped his ministry. So the one was theological liberalism. The other was fundamentalism. Now, fundamentalism, we kind of know that term today as, as kind of an insult that you pay people, right, who are extremely conservative in their religious views. Oh, that's a fundamentalist. So before it was a pejorative, that was, was actually a title for a branch of Christianity. So in response to the liberalizing tendencies that were happening in some denominations, this movement rose up that became known as fundamentalism. It was a response to liberalism. And they retained the Bible as the word of God. They retained orthodox Christian faith, but it came at a cost. Over time, the fundamentalists became anti-intellectual, anti-science, anti-reason. And the reason for this is that where, where liberal theology tended to succeed most was in academia. Uh, in, in most universities, the miraculous was ridiculed as unscientific. So with that, you throw out much of the Bible's teachings right there. Uh, and then much of Christian ethics were ridiculed as being old-fashioned, not progressive enough, Victorian, etc. And with that, you kind of throw out the other half of the Bible. So you didn't you didn't have a lot left. And over the course of several decades, Orthodox Christian faith was bullied out of the university, including, ironically, the seminaries. Uh, so in the early 20th century, if, if you wanted the best seminary education you could get, it would be at Princeton or Yale or Harvard. They have seminaries there. I don't know if you know that. They, most of those schools were originally founded as seminaries, and then the rest of the university grew up around it over time. Uh, but as theological liberalism took root, as unlikely as it sounds, you had an entire gener generation of pastors who would go to seminary uh, at seminaries that didn't actually believe what the Bible taught. And they would have professors who, who either took only small parts of the scriptures or were full-blown atheists, didn't believe in God at all, and they were teaching pastors to be pastors. Uh, the fundamentalists rose up in response to this. And they abandoned the seminaries, they abandoned the universities altogether, they started various Bible institutes around the country, and they would train pastors at these instead. Uh, historic Christian faith was taught in these places, uh, but what was lost? Over time, intellectual rigor was lost, cultural engagement was lost, and there was a widening gulf between those who believed and practiced historic biblical Christianity and society in general. They weren't really speaking to each other anymore. And so Stott, Stott is seeing this, and he says, this won't do either. If we are going to, as the church, if we are going to reach our culture and equip those in other cultures to reach their cultures, then we need to have an intellectually robust faith. We need to engage, not run from the culture around us, not run from those who are self-declared intellectuals, not run from the questions that those on the street have. 
We need to be a church that is biblical and a church that is engaged. His reasoning here is, why does truth ever have to be afraid of error? If we believe that we have the truth of God, there's nothing to fear in deep and rigorous engagement. And the way to do that, he would say, is you stop, study, and struggle. So one of, uh, one of Stott's research assistants for a number of years was a man named John Yates. And uh, John Yates at the time was a, a young uh, PhD student, I believe, making his way uh, into becoming a Bible scholar. And he was a research assistant for John Stott. And he tells a story. He says one time Stott comes out of his study and says to him, JY, because everything with Stott is an acronym, right? So that's John Yates, JY, I have terrible PIM, which is pain in the mind, right? I have terrible pain in the mind. Can you perhaps make me a cup of tea and get me a biscuit, right? This is typical John Stott. And, uh, and so Yates would do this. He would, he would make him some tea, and they would talk together about whatever it was that, that Stott was wrestling through, whatever issue was at hand and whatnot. But Stott's motto in this, he says, when you come to these places where you feel stuck, where you're giving yourself a headache, thinking so hard about how, how do we navigate this part of society as it exists today? How do we bring the Bible to bear on this particular question? You stop, you study, you struggle. You engage, you don't walk away. You don't just wash your hands of it. You don't say, oh, that's ridiculous, and not engage it. No, no, no. If we are going to be God's people on mission, we have to be thoughtful and be able to bring the scriptures to bear on the issues of the day. Stop and study and struggle until you come to a sufficient answer. And I, uh, I love this in Stott's writing. He's one of my favorite people to read. Um, he's, and gosh, I mean, he's written all kinds of books from technical works of theology to apologetics books to uh, stuff for just kind of uh, or, or everyday average Christians. But among his, his favorite books for me are his Bible commentaries, right? And these are reference books that go through and kind of talk about the scriptures verse by verse. He's one of only two or three authors where I can sit down with one of his commentaries and just read it. You know, not as a reference book, but just sit down and be like, okay, I'm, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to read his commentary on 1 Thessalonians or whatever. And um, they're, I mean, they're just marvelous. Uh, They're so well-researched. They're so balanced, so nuanced in the way that they approach things. Incredibly fair. Uh, I've read all of them. I've read all his commentaries, most of them more than once. They're, they're that enjoyable to me. And it's, it's the product of this refusal uh, to engage the Bible only without engaging culture too. Stop and study and struggle. Oh, well, I'll add this too. I, I think um, you know, one, of, one of the highest compliments that I think uh, we get as a church that I, I hear with some regularity is people will say things along the lines of, I'm glad we went there, right? Whether we're talking about human sexuality or we're talking about police violence or we're talking about racism or whatever it is, I'm glad that we went there. I'm glad we're talking about it. And... Um, it just occurred to me this last week for the first time, I think that's John Stott. 
right? I think the reason that it's, like it seems unthinkable to me that we did not, that we would not do that, because if we didn't, who is going to disciple us in the way of Jesus, our culture? We can't do that. We have to let the scriptures be the one who does that. And that's stop. That's stop and study and struggle. Uh, maybe a minor note inside of this too that I'll, I'll point out because it's interesting, that name evangelical. Uh, in this, right, with Christianity in the early 20th century splintering into, again, your theological liberalism on the one side and your fundamentalists on the other side. Uh, Christians who are trying to pursue this course that's very biblical yet very engaged that Stott is describing had to think about, well, what are we going to call ourselves? And in that, Stott was among those who, who said, well, you know, there's a term that was used for Christians in a lot of earlier centuries, we should bring it back, and that term is evangelical. Uh, he, um, his idea here is this is kind of a way down the middle. This is not the Bible rejecting of the liberals, nor the intellectual rejecting of the fundamentalists. And I, I'm fond of using Stott shorthand when people ask me what an evangelical is. He would say, an evangelical is a Christian who can say the creeds without crossing their fingers. Right? You actually believe it. Here's the quote. He says, an evangelical is a plain, ordinary Christian. We stand in the mainstream of historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. So we can recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed without crossing our fingers. You actually believe it, and you attempt to obey it, attempt to live it. That's what the word actually means, contrary to many of the connotations that are attached to it now, most of which are political. John Yates again. Uh, he writes this about Stott. He says, In an age of sound bites and Twitter feeds, many Christian leaders are so busy trying to keep up with current events that few of us take time to stop, to study, and to struggle for the sake of teaching God's people. All too often, we take a side and stick to it without the discipline of listening or questioning our, our instincts. The thin veneer of our discipleship is showing cracks as a result. In this complex and constantly changing world, we do not need more commentary. We need more pain in the mind. John was willing to endure this pain, not just in the quiet of his study, but also in the company of others. He understood that the work of preaching and teaching requires the steadfast suffering of careful thinking. Stop, study, and struggle. One more acronym for you here. And this is HHH, horizontal half hour. <laughs> so I'm using this one as a catch-all for Stott's very deliberate attention to self-care. Uh, he was passionate to ensure that as best he could, he himself would be a good vessel for God's use, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, you note in the video, perhaps, that he wrote more than 50 books, right? So um, that's... Uh, for his ministry years, that's close to one a year, which is crazy to me. I have no idea how a human does that. Um, but he did that. He spoke around the world, convened the Lausanne Conference, this massive international conference where Christian leaders and scholars from around the world could collaborate, all these things. And when asked how he could do so much, he said there were two things. The first was his HHH, his horizontal half-hour which was his way of saying, I take a midday nap. <laughs> right? This was his practice. Every day around noon, he would go down for a half hour nap. And in busy seasons, it was not uncommon for 
him to be at his desk for 12 hours in a day. So he, over time, learned his rhythms. He learned what he needed to be able to be the most productive person that he could. And he found, among other things, he functioned best when he took a nap. Uh, and not just that, uh, John Stott took a Sabbath every week. I know we talk about that a lot here, but he took a Sabbath. He took a monthly day of solitude to be quiet before God. Uh, he would take breaks throughout the year to, to vacation or to go and to visit friends, to be with others. Uh, he learned to work hard. He was a very hard worker. Yet he also learned how to leave margin for recovery. HHH kind of encompasses all that. Uh, Stott's exact practices won't work for everyone, right? Uh, in our culture, most of the jobs that we have will not be amenable to us taking a half-hour nap during the day. It's not going to work. Um, if it does work in your particular job, God bless you. That is rather awesome. Um, but, you know, either because the type of work you do won't allow it, uh, or, you know, you're, you're wild, wired differently. Uh, but the principle is one that all of us would do well to apply. What are the things that help me uh, be a person who's recovering, who's caring well for self, physically and emotionally and spiritually? Um, I've actually tried the nap thing. Been like, hmm, John Stott does it. I should try this. Um, <clears throat> it, it doesn't work for me. I just get groggy, right? Naps are for weekends only because I come out of it all foggy. I can't go back to working. But... Um, you know, but Sabbath has been a huge spiritual discipline for me. Uh, I don't think I would, would still be a pastor if I didn't take a weekly Sabbath. I would have burned out a long time ago. A monthly day of solitude is a practice that I've been doing for 25 years. Right? Very, very crucial for my spiritual and emotional health and growth. Uh, what are the practices for you? What are those things that allow you to operate at your best in stewarding the life and the ministry that God has given you? HHH uh, -H -H was number one. I said there were two things, though. The second thing, just to touch on briefly, was that Stott chose singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, he had the opportunity to marry when he was in his 20s, but he had a, a strong conviction that it wasn't actually what God had for him. Uh, he felt that he would be able to serve God better if he didn't, if he remained single. And you might remember, those of you who are, were here on All Saints Day uh, last year, uh, Henrietta Mears was the person we studied last year. And the same story with her, very similar. And, and it was last year that I discovered, in reading through her life again, looking back through the various 14, 15 people that we've done this with, that over half the people on that list chose singleness. And that's, I think, part of why they are on that list. Uh, and I, I recently taught on this. I won't, I won't rehash all of it again here, too, other than just to say this, uh, that we have to, as the church in America in the 21st century, we have to recover the dignity and the importance of the single life and present it as a real option for our young people and to support those in our midst who choose it. It's biblical, it's important, there's an honor and a dignity to it that we have, have lost in our, our 20th century focus on the family. 
So Stott, for him, that was, that was part of his life and ministry as well. Well, friends, as we, as we reflect on Stott's life, I want to invite you to do some reflection of your own as we respond in worship. Uh, what are the things that God might be pressing on your heart that we would learn from the example of this particular leader? Maybe something with BBC. As you look at how Christianity is lived out in your own life, does it need to be more balanced? Does it need to be more biblical? How might you live into a more balanced, more biblical following of Christ? What about in your use of your mind? Uh, In the way that we approach God and approach being a disciple of Jesus. What might it look like to sharpen the tool that he's given you? To be a steward of the mind that he's given you? What practices might help you go deeper uh, into uh, being a person who stops and studies and struggles? And uh, and finally, when it comes to self-care, spiritual practices, do you have regular rhythms of life that are helping you stay strong spiritually, that are helping you recover uh, from periods of life and work and ministry. Uh, The horizontal half hour will not work for all of us, but we all need to have practices that allow us uh, to follow Christ well in ways that keep us fresh, in ways that allow us to continue following over time. Well, in, um, in a minute, we're going to take some time responding in worship. Uh, that will include prayer for any who would like to be prayed for today. I invite you, as, as we begin to sing again in a moment, if you'd like to be prayed for, we'll be praying for each other in the back corner of the room. Uh, we're going to be receiving communion this morning as well. Uh, and as we do so, I invite you, if you are desirous of what Jesus offers then the table of the Lord is for you. Uh, Let's pray together, and we'll continue to worship.